Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Ring of Fire, The Young Turks, Tom Hartman, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and Mother Jones Radio. Right now, we're back with Jeff Goodell, author of the new book, Big Coal, The Dirty Secret Behind America's Energy Future. Has anybody done like a real assessment? You do some of this in your book about the true cost of coal and what it would cost per kilowatt hour if you actually added up all the externalities. And how does that compete with solar and wind and oil and gas? There has been an interesting study that was cited to me by um, a Princeton professor that was done uh, in, in the late 90s called the uh, Extern E study, which attempted to simply price the health effects of air pollution in, into the cost of a megawatt of, of electric power. And in that, they, they came up with an additional $33 per megawatt uh, in just the cost of the health effects from, a, from a, a, a coal plant versus under 50 cents, for example, from a natural gas plant. So when the coal industry touts cheap power from a coal plant at, say, $8 a megawatt hour, or in fact, if you just add in the health effects, you know, you're up into $45 a megawatt. And if you, if you were pricing electricity at that price, solar and wind and everything would, would be a, a complete boom. But this really goes to the heart of the problem with why we're so dependent upon coal. You say that according to the Princeton study, healthcare impacts of coal burning just from ozone and particulates, just not, not counting mercury and the other contaminants, that that may impose about a th- cost of $33 per megawatt. What's the total cost of, for example, renewables of wind or solar at this point on the market? You know, that's very, very, you know, uh, widely depending on where you are. In some places, wind is, can be competitive at, at $10 a megawatt. Natural gas prices now in, the, in most parts of the U.S. are, I think, around $50 a megawatt hour. And in a lot of places, uh, wind is competitive with that, if not below that. In, in parts of Texas, I think that's significantly below that now. Of course, the thing with solar is that there's, still, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, innovation going on right now and a lot of money being poured into research. And, and there's, there's still you know, a lot of hope of bringing that down relatively quickly. But even with those high costs, if you if you add in the externalities from coal, um, they're probably uh, they probably beat coal in the marketplace. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you added in even uh, a portion of the externalities from coal, they would they would beat uh, coal in the marketplace. But you know that's not going to happen, and I don't see that changing anytime quickly. Is there any such thing as clean coal? That is a you know a really very clever advertising slogan that the industry has worked up. You know, to give them some credit, it is true that if you look at it from a 1970s point of view, emissions have fallen about 35%, and that's really great. The problem is is that they don't tell you that they spent millions of dollars fighting against every one of those regulations that forced those cuts, predicting the, the collapse of the American economy and the rising of electricity prices and things. And most of all, it doesn't take in carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuel power plants, which are mostly coal, have risen 27% just since 1990. So if you factor any of these things into, your, into, a, into a definition of clean coal, it's obviously just a, a slogan. 
One of the revelations that I learned from reading your book, Jeff, was how the Enron debacle impacted the gas industry in this country. Can you talk about that? And that gas, of course, is one of the big competitors and a, a relatively clean competitor. It's something that's embraced by environmental groups as a bridge fuel to the future of renewables and hydrogen, et cetera. Enron not only uh, stole a lot of money from our country, but it also made us more dependent on coal in some ways. Well, it did. Enron was you know, a powerful force in, in the natural gas industry, and um, they were also a powerful force in the electricity restructuring movement. When they fell apart, that was part of, the, of what prompted the um, gas, natural gas prices to start to begin to skyrocket, especially, obviously, in California, where we had these rolling blackouts in 2001. It was also perfectly politically timed because it was at exactly the time that the Cheney Task Force, Energy Task Force, was beginning to develop their energy plan, and it allowed them to make the argument that you know we need to build a lot more coal plants and you know we need to to, to boost our electric supply in America, and the and the Cheney Energy Plan came out with a call for 1,900 new coal plants, and you know that was the, the sort of kickoff of the coal boom that we're seeing now and. The coal industry really sees this as a moment to exploit. They know they have a couple more years under the Bush administration, under a very coal-friendly administration. They're determined to get many of these coal plants approved and built in these remaining years as they can. Now, one of the things that the Bush administration talks about is coal sequestration, and that is a concept that's been embraced by many people within the environmental community. It's a way of isolating carbon, of removing the carbon that is released by burning coal and sequestering it under the earth. And that's, you know, people talk about clean coal. Your book kind of shows that there is no such thing as clean coal, that every aspect of the production is destructive. One of the things that you'll find some environmentalists talking about with excitement is that, well, there's a possibility that we can take some of the worst global warming causative impacts due to coal emissions, coal burning emissions, and we can take that carbon and put it under the ground and keep it safe. Is that something that's realistic? The issue really, and we know that this can work on a limited scale. It, they're already doing it now for uh, enhanced oil recovery. They pump the carbon dioxide into old uh, oil and gas fields and use it to push out more oil and gas. The problem is it is a massive, massive engineering project. We would have to have hundreds if not thousands of these sequestration sites all over the country. And the, the, the simple fact is, is not every part of the country has the right geology for this. So it will work, for example, fine in Wyoming, but it won't work in Georgia. Uh, it won't work in Massachusetts. And so the idea that this is going to be a kind of magic cure-all, that we're just going to be able to keep on burning the coal and bury all this ugly CO2 underground, I think is a fantasy that will soon, that will soon fade away. Uh, coal production has really shifted from Appalachia to Wyoming. What are the implications for Wyoming? And what are the implications for Appalachia and for our country? The rise of Wyoming coal has largely been driven by the, by the Clean Air Act and the fact that the, the coal in Wyoming is uh, lower sulfur. It now produces about 40% of the coal in the U.S. But the other big issue about reason Wyoming has been so successful is that the coal is in these immensely thick 60, 70, 80, 100-foot thick seams that are buried relatively shallow, 100 feet or 200 feet 
under the surface of the prairie. And so com compared to Appalachia, where you have to either dig into the in these underground mines that are very labor expensive and labor intensive, or else blast apart these mountains, which is also very expensive and labor intensive. Wyoming coal, it's almost like you know digging up sand in the backyard. I mean, it's really from a mining point of view very simple. The implications for Appalachia of this is that putting tremendous cost pressure on Appalachia to do things cheaper and cheaper, which means you know blasting apart more and more mountains, cutting back environmental regulations. And in the end, Appalachia is going to be a real loser to the growth of, of Wyoming coal. The problem with Wyoming coal is that it's out in the middle of nowhere and there's no people around. And so in order to get the coal to the, to the power plants, you have this incredibly complex network of railroads that's hauling it around. And so the real consequences for this is that you, you're going to begin to see the kind of industrialization of Wyoming and of the West, of a, of a whole new generation of power plants. Uh, going up there um, with enormous consequences to anyone who considers, uh, who cares about environmental issues in the West, such as clean air and water. They paint paradise and put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone They paint paradise and put up a parking lot Uh, it turns out global warming is real. That's what I'd like to discuss. Saturday I went and made the tremendous mistake of going out for a jog in L.A. Mm -hmm. And I figured, it's L.A. Summer, who cares? It's the same temperature yeah, look, pretty warm, much year-round. Warmer than it often is, but... Uh, but a little. You know, it's, no it, it, what is it going to do? Get above 85? <laughs> I'm going to get above 85. Turned out it was 105 and humid. And I, by the end, I was like, oh, I was like, I was like, please, somebody make this jog in. Please. I didn't know whether it was worse to walk to the end or run to the end. I didn't know what was happening. It was like, I, I, for the first time in my life, I was worried about heat stroke. Yeah. I was like, I want... So no, my, I didn't take any stories. The one that the, the football players yeah, take. Look, I I, I I I wasn't feeling well last week, and I didn't actually run. But I, I, when I was running last week, about mm -hmm. ten days ago, it wasn't even this hot yet. I had the same sort of feeling. I was like, "What the hell is this?" Because I ran at noon for mm -hmm. some cockamamie. Reason. No, and the last three days in L.A. have been ridiculous. This is unnatural. L.A. is not supposed to be it's this. It's 103 hot. degrees. This is like in, in regular L.A. It's 119 in, in, in Woodland Hills, which is like generally the hottest part of the city. Yeah, but that's fine because it's in the valley. The valley's allowed to be hot. Right. It's unnatural for Los Angeles, California to be this hot. Yeah. Global warming is coming. The icebergs are melting, I'm telling you. Uh, it's as unnatural as uh, uh, gay sex, of course, and men on dog sex. Yeah. So uh, look, I don't know. It's, you know, I don't know whether this is part of global warming. And I, I... Ben, look at Ben, <laughs> conservative. <laughs> okay. No. <laughs> of course, it's part. Of, everything's part of global warming. <laughs> Everything is. <laughs> but because uh, I always like it when people are so sure that it's global warming. Right. Uh, because... Last week the air conditioning was broken here, and it was like 77 degrees in here. Global warming. <laughs> because of course, and in the stories that look, global warming is a fact. It's here. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know whether this heat wave has anything to do with it. it. It's hot all over the country, hot all over the world. That's more of an indication. But like in those stories, I always want to say the the rhetorical question to the people who insist that this is proof of global warming is that all these stories in the L.A. Times are like it's the hottest summer in Los Angeles since 1981. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, then what happened? And what was going on in 1981? <laughs> and they're like that was the beginning of global warming. <laughs> <laughs> all right, look, putting all kidding aside, you know what's evidence of global warming? 928 scientific studies. Yeah, that's it. All saying the same exact thing. Global warming is real, man-made, and it's man-made. We were having dinner with a friend of ours who's a very, very bright guy last week. Um, actually, I, I think the global warming discussion was when I was alone with him. Um, <laughs> and he was like, Was what? that after dinner? <laughs> no, it was the night before. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right, I'm going to leave it. <laughs> uh, anyway, he was like, well, you know, that's what some say, but I have my doubts. Oh, really? Yeah, he's so smart. That's yeah. ridiculous. And I was like, but you see, what, that doesn't make any sense. You can't have your doubts unless you know something that 928 peer-reviewed scientific studies don't know. What is it? You can't just say that. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you can't. No, no, you can't. It's just you're repeating. You're repeating a talking point. You're not even a candidate for that. You're not. You're, he's not politically. He doesn't care. It's like saying, uh, you know, they tell me that CO2 is made up of carbon and, and O2, but... Some people say. Some people say that, but others say differently. Let me, let me hit you with a Fox online survey, a Sean Hannity survey on global warming. Mm-hmm. Is global warming really an issue? Five possible answers. One, yes, but it's not as important as immigration. Two, maybe. Three, in about 500 years. Four, no way. Five, yes. That's a fox, sir. Those are real people. These are journalists. You're, you trust what Sean Hannity said. That's the survey. 54% going with no way. 8% going with yes. Fox wants to find out who those people are. I never meant to be so bad to you. One thing I said that I would never do. A look from you and I would fall from grace. And that would wipe the smile right from my face. Dr. Helen Caldicott is with us in the studio right now. She has a new book out, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. And Dr. Caldicott, with all the bloviating going on about terrorism and the terrorist threat, and holy cow, they might bring a little liquid on an airplane, it's really not the big threat, is it? No, the real nuclear terrorists in the world are Russia and America. Of the 30,000 hydrogen bombs today in the world, Russia and America own 97%. And they've still got thousands of them on hair-trigger alert, ready to go at the press of the button by Vladimir Putin or George Bush. So serious is it that Yeltsin in 1995 in January got within 10 seconds of blowing up America when the Russians made a mistake and thought a Norwegian weather satellite was actually a first-strike attack by the United States. And the U.S. still has a policy to fight and win a nuclear war against Russia, which means the end of life on Earth. Both of them have enough weapons to overkill every person on Earth 12 times. 
That's a Pentagon term. You kill them, they stand up again. You kill them, they stand overkill. So, you know, no one's talking about this, but and this is the real, real threat that faces all of us every day. And the <clears throat> and for those people who are hysterical or concerned or, I mean, I, I, there's some legitimate concern, I suppose, of asymmetrical attacks, people who don't have nuclear technology, who want to exploit nuclear technology, the the real threat to the United States, or perhaps the greatest threat to the United States, is not somebody smuggling two ounces of, of nitroglycerin onto an airplane. The, the 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 real threat is sitting in the cooling towers in the cooling yeah. You, you've of, got you've got nuclear targets all over the country. You've got 103 nuclear power plants, and beside them, huge pools of very very radioactive uh, nuclear waste sitting there. In a reactor is as much long-lived radiation as that released by the explosion of a 1,000 Hiroshima weapons. But beside them, in the cooling pools, they call them swimming pools, euphemistically, is as much as 30 times as much radiation. You need a handheld rocket to bust the cooling pool, let the water out, and that material will melt down and just contaminate forever huge areas of this country, let alone flying a plane into a nuclear power plant. So, in fact, if I was a terrorist, uh, I could easily melt a nuclear power plant down within hours. I mean, they're just sitting ducks, and no one takes any notice of this. And since 9-11, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has not increased security at any of the nuclear power plants, can you believe? And yet, in in the 9-11 Commission report, they pointed out that Mohammed Atta originally was thinking of flying one of those planes into Indian Point's nuclear reactor because it would have contaminated hundreds of miles around New York City, including New York City. And he ultimately decided not to because he was certain that they must be protected by surface-to-air missiles. Yeah, well, they're not. And And they're still not. No. In my book, I've described a meltdown at Indian Point coming from the Union of Concerned Scientists. Over 600,000, 700,000 people would die and if the wind's blowing in the right direction. Can you imagine the roads in Westchester clogged in gridlock with people trying to get to the kindergartens to pick their children up, inhaling radioactive material, tasting this metallic smell in their mouth, dying within weeks with their hair falling out, bleeding and vomiting to death, and then the stuff gets to Manhattan, the stock market closes, no one would ever live there again. I mean, this is a very realistic scenario. And it need not even be... We're talking with Dr. Helen Caldicott. Her new book, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer, and I eventually will want to get to nuclear power here as well. I guess we are, indirectly. We are, yeah. um, it's not even... You wouldn't even necessarily need an airplane to do it. You were talking, we oh, were talking a little earlier about the experience you had last week with a boat. Well, you know, there was nearly a meltdown the other day in Sweden. Um, they lost their external electricity supply. Don't forget global warming's happening, and I think there was a storm or something, so the electricity went. Of their four emergency generators, two failed to start, and for 20 minutes or more, no one knew what was happening, like at Three Mile Island or Chernobyl, and they said it's the closest anyone's come since Chernobyl to a major meltdown. Why was this not headlines in the United States? Why is it that I'm learning about this I'm just from you laughing at you. I mean, why Times? don't you report the world news in a way that everyone understands? I have to say, I just flew in from Australia yesterday, and you know, we do get the world news. We yeah. get the BBC. We yeah. get uh, Radio Deutsche Welle. We hear what's... Act- we see the dead babies in Lebanon and in Iraq, you know, on the television. Why are you being protected, so to speak, 
from the truth that's happening in the world, that's very serious. It is. It is very serious. Very it, serious. it is very problematic. And, and Americans can take anything, and they should know what's happening, being the most powerful country on Earth. And, and to bring this back to nuclear power for a moment, a nuclear power plant need not be brought down by a lack of physical no, electricity. No, all you need to do is cut the external electricity supply, and the generators, emergency generators don't always work. Um, if I was Timothy McVeigh and I had a little speedboat and I was outside Indian Point the other day on Bobby Kennedy's boat, I could have driven a, a little powerboat full of explosives, fertilizer explosives, into the cooling pipes that suck in a million gallons of water a minute from the Hudson. Two cooling pipes, each a million gallons, burst the pipes and within a couple of hours those reactors would melt down. I mean, they're absolute sitting ducks. I don't know. You weren't intercepted by the Coast Guard when you were there? Nobody appeared. It was absolute silence, and we got quite close to the, to the plant. Amazing. So I don't know why it hasn't happened already. I mean, they all should be shut down tomorrow, if not today. Shut down. Shut down. Yeah. Only 20% of your electricity comes from nuclear power. You could save 25% of the electricity you currently use by turning off your lights. Mm-hmm. Nobody should use Clothes dryers, you should hang your clothes outside in the sun to be dried by that reactor in the sky. In the winter, hang them up by your furnace, say dry in a flash. Mm-hmm. That would save nearly as much power as the nuclear energy in- in- industry produces. Don't use dishwashers. Put in some water in your sink. Don't keep running it. Water with a plug and wash your dishes, which I do every day. The way we day. learned how to do as kids. Yeah. yeah, I know. Every day, you know, there are so many turn off all your lights. Have only one light on in the room in which you're working and do not have any other lights on in the house. Turn off all your VCRs, those blinking lights all night. Turn them off. They suck a lot of juice out of the grid. And then you can provide the whole of the electricity you need from wind power, solar power, geothermal, uh, cogeneration. It's all here. And I'm about to write a roadmap to provide you with clean, non-global warming electricity with no nuclear power. The technology's here. All you need is to get your politicians to represent you and do the right thing. Yeah, and well said. We're talking with Dr. Helen Caldicott. Her new book, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. Dr. Caldicott, we have about a minute before we have to take a break, and then we can continue our conversation. But um, Australia, you're Australian. I am. And I've I've spent a fair amount of time in Australia. It doesn't seem to me that Australia is that far apart from the United States Mm -hmm. in terms of our mutual um, addiction to oil, let's say. We've got a very bad prime minister called John Howard. mm -hmm. We've got rude names for him in terms of his relationship with George Bush. But he is totally run by the coal industry, and coal is producing global warming, Mm -hmm. um, and by the nuclear industry, because we've got 40% of the world's richest uranium. He's cut down any research on solar and we're a country bathed in sun, a huge continent oh, so bathed much so in that sun. It, so much so that a third of it is unusable because there's too much sun. I know. And, <laughs> and then they closed down a wind farm that was to be built because there was an orange-bellied parrot. They've seen one in 100 years or something and said, well, you know, one could be killed every 100 years. I mean, the, the thing is so corrupt. And, uh, and I've just launched my book over there. And I testified before John Howard, he's the Prime Minister's, his commission on nuclear power the other day, and they're, they're physicists. 
And they said, well, we don't necessarily agree with you. And I said, I just gave this lecture at Harvard to my alma mater the other day, and the doctors were absolutely stunned by the information. I'm not wrong, I'm right. Yeah. Yet to make a physicist understand medicine is not easy unless they themselves get a malignancy, and then they get it. More with Dr. Helen Caldicott in just a moment. 16 minutes past the hour on the Tom Hartman Program. fodder and and the cannons are are certainly firing tragically welcome back tom hartman here with you our program syndicated by air america radio the radio support group of by and for we the people dr helen caldicott is in the office or in the studio here with us nuclear power is not the answer her new book dr caldicott in may of 1986 i flew into frankfurt uh, germany and i remember walking down it was raining and I remember walking, I got off the plane and I, I had not, you know, I was like not connected to the news in the last 24 hours and uh, got off the train and was walking to my hotel and the city was empty. It was a ghost town because it was raining. And I got to the hotel and as soon as I got in, the guy said, you're going to want to take your coat off and, and rinse it off down up when you get upstairs. And I'm like, what's the problem? And he's the cloud is going over from Chernobyl right now and everybody is hiding inside. Um, we went on to live in Germany that year, 86, 87, and I used to walk through the supermarket with a Geiger counter, and you walk by the mushrooms or the milk, and it would go like that. Um, what are the consequences to we, the people of, the, of this planet, and to the rest of animal life as well, of the byproducts of nuclear power? Well, at the moment, 40% of the European land mass is still radioactive. There are 300 As farms, a result of Chernobyl. Yeah. There are 300 farms in Wales, in Britain, who grow lambs, and the lambs are so full of cesium-137 that causes brain cancer and muscle cancer, they can't be sold on the market. The mushrooms are still radioactive because what got out was strontium-90 that lasts for 600 years, bioconcentrates in the food chain like the grass hundreds of times and then in the milk hundreds of times, then in the human lactating breast hundreds of times, then in babies. Mm. And babies are 10 to 20 times more sensitive to radiation than adults. They get cancer much more readily. And this stuff lasts and it causes bone cancer or leukemia. So, you know, this food will be radioactive for 600 years. I do not buy European food because I don't know what, Batches are radioactive and yeah. what are not. Cesium-137 lasts for 600 years. So, and it's concentrated continually in the food. And you can't taste like Hershey's Milk Kiss and say, I can taste the strontium-90 in this. Why? <laughs> because there was a major meltdown at Three Mile Island. Mm-hmm. Hershey's is 13 miles as the crow flies from Three Mile Island. There's been a huge cover-up. We don't know how much radiation got out, but in my book... Nuclear power is not the answer. I've got a lot of stuff from a whistleblower from the Hershey's labs describing how they 
powdered the milk for six weeks or two months so that the radioactive iodine would decay. But then what about the strontium that lasts for 600 oh, years man. and the plutonium that lasts for half a million years? And a lot of that apparently got out too. So, you see, we didn't evolve so our senses, taste, smell or sight could pick up radiation and so you don't taste it. And when you get your breast cancer or the child gets the leukemia, it doesn't wear a little sign saying what made it. So it's a cryptogenic, silent thing. And the incubation time for cancer is not two days like if I sneeze on you and you get a cold. It's five to 60 years. And that's why the nuclear industry are able to get away with what they do because it's hard to tell which cancers are caused by what, except there are now clusters of cancer in people around, living around nuclear power plants. No, I remember when, when we lived in Germany, the, the original uh, limit in milk was five becquerels per liter, and then they raised it to 50 becquerels per liter, and then they raised it to 500 becquerels per liter because uh, they didn't want to stop selling milk. That's just the me- just general measurement it. of radiation, be it strontium or cesium right. in the milk. And I suppose the Europeans were scared out of their wits at first. And then after a couple of years, you adjust because you've got to eat. Mm-hmm. Now, in Australia, we have totally non-radioactive food. And we should be advertising that to a radioactive Europe and say, eat our clean food. But we also want to sell our uranium. That's right. And by pushing uranium, we're pushing cancer because it gets fissioned in a reactor, becomes one billion times more radioactive and then Bob's your uncle. That's radioactive waste that lasts for half a million years. So we, we have cancer pushes in Australia. Yeah, and in the United States, we have about well, 30, yeah. 30 seconds left here. Dr. Yeah. Helen Caldicott, our new book, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. What can we do? Well, educate yourselves. You know, Jefferson said an informed democracy will behave in a responsible fashion. Read my book, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer. You'll get everything you need. Then you've got enough information to debate and beat George Bush on television any night. Mobilize yourselves. If you're a doctor, get the medical professional. I'll come and speak at your annual conference. If you're a Jehovah's Witness, I'll come there. This is a medical issue. It's not political. It's medical. Close down every single reactor in America. Become the world's leader for sanity and survival and get into alternative energy. It's all there. You can do it. You're a good democracy if you use it. Spoken like a prophet uh, or prophetess. Dr. Helen Caldicott, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer is the book. And uh, is there a, your website? What's Yeah, nuclearpolicy.org. Nuclear, nuclear policy. And there's a huge amount of information on that. That's my, my institute, Nuclear Policy Research Institute. Nuclearpolicy.org. Yep. We can work it out. We can work it out. Think of what you're saying. You can get it wrong. Exxon Mobil's released all of their flying monkeys to target Al Gore's movie An Inconvenient Truth. 
75% of Americans, as we speak, finally see that that Exxon, Michael Crichton, John Stossel crowd really are a desperate group of flat-earth thinkers who would gladly destroy the lives of your children so they can make bigger profits and sell more books. A full 75% of Americans finally get it. And they believe that the government needs to do something about global warming right now, not tomorrow. And frankly, that scares the hell out of the biggest pigs that are feeding at the trough right now. Some of Exxon's flying monkeys come from exactly where you'd expect. Places like the Competitive Enterprise Institute. It's a group that could find scientists willing to argue that the sun actually revolves around the earth as long as the money's big enough. They don't have a standard. So Exxon gives this bogus think tank millions really to create fraudulent, phonied-up science about there being no global warming. Then after that think tank literally makes up phony science, Exxon goes to a real group of serious bottom feeders called DCI. They're a group of Washington lobbyist money changers who would no doubt wage a smear campaign against Mother Teresa if the cash involved was big enough. But now Exxon's newest flying monkey is taking the form of an internet video available online through YouTube. It was produced by one of DCI's lackeys for Exxon. The video is a parody of Inconvenient Truth that makes Gore look like a dimwit buffoon for his stand on global warming. It's called Al Gore's Penguin Army, and it's bought and paid for by a bunch of old, worn-out, ball-headed Republican types at Exxon. But a 17- or 18-year-old surfing the net is going to believe that it's a hip, funny, artistic storyline about global warming. And that Internet surfer will never know that its creators are old oil billionaires who could care less whether the next generation boils, burns up, or melts into the sea. Because with Exxon, just like they always tell us, it's all about money. And you know what's obvious? The men and women at Exxon and the Competitive Enterprise Institute and the DCI lobby group, no doubt they have children and grandchildren. And it's always amazing to me that they're able to sit across the dinner table with those kids and actually project the idea that they love those children, that they actually care about their future and their well-being, the well-being of their own flesh and blood. But i got to tell you, the real bottom line is that they'll gladly, willingly cash in on the lives of their own kids so they can personally make a lot more cash today. The Pap Attack on Air America Radio Network. Go to ringoffireradio.com or airamericaradio.com for more info.
All right, so there you go. That's that story. Then uh, Pat Robertson, uh, all of a sudden, uh, out of nowhere, uh, Pat Robertson is, uh, you know, he's sweating to the oldies because uh, it's like 170 degrees in, in 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 Washington and down in New York. And so he said uh, on uh, Thursday today that the wave of scorching temperatures across the United States has converted him to a believer in global oh. warming. She shows you how dumb he is that that it like it doesn't take the 928 unchallenged peer review scientific articles it it takes man it's too freaking hot. Uh and now he's a believer when in fact it's quite you know we had this kind of heat wave before in this country this might not be global warming. It 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 might be we just won't know for some time there is some thought among many scientists that what global warming does we're always going to have heat waves we would have temperatures like this i remember the, the summer of uh, i think it was like 89 or 90 was it very hot then yes uh, 1981 was hotter in los angeles than this summer is by the way so uh, even though it's very hot this summer in la but uh, what global warming may be doing regarding these heat waves is making these heat waves longer and a little harsher right uh, as, but we don't know that this is the stuff we learned many years from now but pat robertson anyway he sold he says we really need to address the burning of fossil fuels fuels. So, there you go. It's getting hotter and the ice caps are melting and there is buildup of carbon dioxide in the air. Hmm. Huh. Welcome now, aboard. LA Times did a story about how scientists are reporting that they're now it is affecting the global warming is affecting the acidity of the ocean. That it, this is the most acidic the oceans have been in 650,000 years. And that by the end of the century it will be Two and a half times more acidic. The entire ocean will be two and a half times more acidic than before the Industrial Revolution began. That is an overwhelming scientific uh, fact, and that should really be a cause of concern. It could start killing literally all the fish. Uh, but that doesn't affect Pat Robertson. No. Here, look, His ass gets a little sweaty, and he goes, oh, I guess global warming Let me real. hit you with this uh, quote, guys. This week, as the temperature soared in New York uh, to 115 in some regions of the U.S. East Coast, the 76-year-old Robertson told viewers, quote, this was the most convincing evidence I've seen on global warming in a long time. Pat Robertson, if he believes that, is one of the dumbest people one, in America. One of the dumbest people with power in America. No question. next limerick though emission controls getting tighter of rock fans i'm not an indicter go ahead flick your bick when the solos get slick when the tunes slow down whip out your lighter yes very good <laughs> fans of the environment and the power ballad can now breathe a sigh of relief a new study has revealed that holding up your lighter during a concert will contribute to global warming <laughs> And I was worried. According to popular science, and this is the example they used, by the way, if a thousand Night Ranger fans flicked their bicks during the entire song Sister Christian, mm -hmm. 
It would release 10,000 times less carbon dioxide than is released by a power plant in one minute. Mm -hmm. So go, you know, go nuts, people. Right. I think the, the funniest thing there is a thousand Night Ranger fans. <laughs> <laughs> How would okay. you find them? There's the lead guitar, the singer, <laughs> their moms. It's one thing to discuss the science of global warming in the abstract. Polar bears you've never seen are dying. People you've never met will die in the future. It's very, very different when a heat wave lands on your head, stretches across the U.S., has its counterpart in Europe. Cows stop giving milk. Those are the fortunate ones. The unfortunate ones die where they are. That's what California faced this year. And over in London, they topped out at 115 degrees in July, enough to melt the pavement just as as it did in California. All of this is no surprise to Ross Gelbspan. He was a major contributor to the Mother Jones cover story in May and June of last year, As the World Burns. This special issue has won multiple awards and is all available for you at motherjones.com. He's also the author of Boiling Point and The Heat is On. Ross Gelbspan, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Andy, very much. It's really good to have you here. These record temperatures, realistically, we hear from scientists, you cannot point at them and say for sure these are the results of global warming. What's your take on that? Uh, you know, the scientists have to be very careful, so they say you can't attribute any one event to global warming, but what they say very loud and clear is this is a pattern that we expect to see from global warming, which is more heat waves, uh, more frequent heat waves, more persistent heat waves. That's one of many changes in our climate that we will be seeing. And there are very few scientists I think you can find who say this has nothing to do with global warming. One thing that's very characteristic of this particular period that's really unusual is the fact, as you mentioned in the intro, that the heat wave has really been traveling all over the world, and that really is extremely unusual. And I do recall in my youth that these things were covered as the occasional odd crisis. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the fact that people understand more about global warming now, even if they mistakenly attribute the current heat wave 100% to global warming, it is a raising of awareness of what will be happening across the world. Absolutely. There's no question about it. The media is finally beginning to cover this issue, although I still think the media is in sort of stage two denial where they're really minimizing the urgency and the magnitude and the speed with which these changes are happening. Nevertheless, it is getting on the public radar screen. If I can, I'd like to just put in one more word about heat waves. Mm -hmm. uh, and as we all recall, the worst heat wave in memory happened in 2003 in Europe when we had somewhere between 35 and 50,000 fatalities. And that heat wave bore a very specific signature of human-induced global warming. I'm sure there have been heat waves in the past that have been as hot and as long, but without anywhere near that number of fatalities. And one of the key findings of climate scientists, and I don't know whether that's going to be true in the U.S. heat wave or not, 
But one of the key findings of climate scientists is that as Earth's temperature increases, the nighttime low temperatures go up twice as fast as the daytime high temperatures. And that's wow. because the carbon dioxide and the greenhouse gases trap the heat in overnight. They don't allow the traditional, what they call radiational cooling. And what that means for us mortals is that when a person's body becomes heat stressed during the day, they don't get the normal nighttime uh, cooling to recuperate. And I think that's why we saw so many heat deaths in Europe uh, a couple of years ago. And that's why we may see more in the future, especially among elderly people and poor people who can't afford air conditioning. You know, I, this brings up another issue that I think people really haven't fully anticipated is that the way our infrastructure is set up. One thing we saw with the heat wave in California, the transformers are built to cool down at night. And part of the reason that the, some of the energy started going offline is because with this, as you say, signature global warming effect, the transformers couldn't cool down at night, so they just gave up. Mm. And, and the infrastructure is built around old weather models. That's right. That's also true about the nuclear industry because uh, they are closing down nuclear plants because the cooling water from some of these rivers that's really heating up uh, is too warm to cool the nuclear plants. So they have been closing down uh, nuclear plants, I know, in Europe, and I'm not sure where else, simply because of that as well, and also because it drops in water levels, but particularly because of the high temperatures of the uh, rivers that are normally used to keep the nuclear plants cool. Ross Gelbspan is my guest as we talk about the latest evidence of global warming. His books are Boiling Point and the Heat is On. That last title cleverly transformed into the name of his website, www.heatisonline.org. Let's talk about the efforts to circumvent the president, who's been, shall we say, a tad slow in responding to the global warming <laughs> crisis. Uh, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger got together with Prime Minister Tony Blair, and it's, it's so easy to say Tony Blair is the lapdog of President Bush, but he's actually taken a stance that global warming is more immediate than the U.S. has officially acknowledged, and they've essentially done a runaround and signed an agreement to work together to curb greenhouse emissions, and then, of course, at the same gathering, former President Clinton showed up and said he's launching a global initiative with some of the world's largest cities. So are we starting to see the ship turn around a bit here in the U.S. despite the wishes of the captain? I hope we are. It's very hard to tell whether that will have any traction or not. I mean, it's very clear that the awareness of this stuff in Europe is uh, light years ahead of what it is in the U.S. And just as a very quick example, the science tells us we need to cut emissions globally by 70%. Um, Holland is right now cutting emissions by 80% in 40 years. Tony Blair has committed the U.K. to cut emissions by uh, 60% in 50 years. Germans are committed to 50% cuts in 50 years. French President Chirac not long ago called on the entire industrial world to cut emissions 75% by the year 2050. Um, there are these end runs trying to happen. Uh, the partnership between California and Britain is clearly only in a rhetorical phase right now. Um, what I would really like to see is Europe follow up with much stronger kind of economic sanctions against the U.S. And what I'm talking about here is I had a very interesting conversation in 2001 with officials from the French, uh, Swiss, and Canadian governments. And this was just before the Kyoto Protocol took effect. It was about a year before Kyoto took effect. And there are, they said that what they were planning to do was to bring the U.S. to court under the World Trade Organization. 
uh, and their argument was the WTO prohibits uh, governments from subsidizing their products, and they were going to argue that since they were drawing down emissions according to the Kyoto schedule and the U.S. was not, they were going to sue the U.S. for carbon subsidizing its products and move for very, very stiff taxes on U.S. exports. Um, unfortunately, the terrorist attacks intervened. The coalition of the willing sort of eclipsed this other effort. Um, but I expect to see more action against the United States government in the future, both from countries in Europe that are making these major, major changes, and also from developing countries that are bearing the brunt of the impacts of this stuff. So um, that's really where my hope for change lies, because unfortunately, I think our own government is really in the thrall of coal and oil interests. I mean, the coal and oil industry basically is writing the Bush administration's climate and energy policies. And what saddens me the most as a 30-year journalist is the fact that the press is sort of rolling over and letting it happen without raising very much awareness of that. So It, it seems so that this summer of heat may have, have, have been the goose in the behind that the American press has needed to start covering this seriously. We started to see that a little bit, and I know you wrote on this too, with Hurricane Katrina, and it seems to have grown louder since then. I hope so. I really do. I think Katrina was a major wake-up call. Um, but I certainly didn't see any change in government policies or certainly in, uh, you know, in a major way. One thing that's really missing from this whole discussion is this, I think. I think that most of the American public who don't pay a whole lot of attention to this think that a change to clean energy basically means a real decline in our lifestyle, and it doesn't. Um, And that message really needs to be gotten across in a loud, clear way. For example, the Department of Energy has said that if we were to build big wind farms in the nation's wind corridors in the upper Midwest and West Texas or a mix of land-based and offshore wind farms, they could produce all the electricity the country uses with no decline in living standards. And people need to understand this doesn't necessarily mean we all have to sit in the dark and ride bicycles. Um, We simply need to change our fuel sources. Thanks for listening, everybody. So yesterday I was talking about how I think that uh, libertarians are kind of creepy. And I I was thinking today that it might be uh, mildly entertaining if I actually related the story to you that has led me to the conclusion that libertarians are creepy. And, uh, you know, libertarians, I mean, true libertarians, uh, well, frankly, I don't even know what that is, but people who call themselves libertarians are often pretty hard to find. And so, you know, as, as like a normal person going through life, you just don't get that much contact with them. But my, possibly my first contact with a person who called himself libertarian came at uh, my first job I ever had. And this, it's definitely the first contact I, I've had with one uh, after my political awakening, anyways. And this is, it was one of those jobs where, you know, the whole place is filled with um, 95% teenagers uh, and then like 4%, you know, people over 40 who you feel really sorry for. And then the one, like, medium-aged manager who takes his job way too seriously. 
that that's this job I had. And so there's this guy, Doug, who called himself a libertarian. And he was aware that I had had my political awakening. And I was, um, you know, keep in mind, this is only, I don't know, uh, two, two years ago, two and a half years. I don't know. Pretty, pretty recently. And so I was listening to Air America, uh, on my little portable radio at work. And I would try to have political debates with him, but you, you can't do that with a libertarian because they don't make any freaking sense. Um, because they just hate everybody. That's their, you know, they're, they're, they don't align themselves with anyone and they just think that everybody's bad because, um, I don't like taxes is theft or something generally to that effect. But one day this guy, Doug comes up to me and he says, Hey Jay, you know what amendment I think they should repeal? I said, no, Doug, uh, which, which one? He said the 19th. Uh, and I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, you're going to have to fill me in. I'm, I'm not sure what, what the 19th talks about. And he said, that's the one where, um, they allow women to vote. And I said, you want to repeal the amendment in the constitution that allows women to vote? And he said, yeah. And I said, why? I don't really understand. He said, well, we got along just fine for a while there without him. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that he's not representative of their crowd. Uh, honestly, I'm hoping that he's not representative of any crowd. Because this is the same guy who is known to walk up to people and say something to the effect of, Hey, Jay, do, do you ever wonder what if the Hokey Pokey really is what it's all about? Leaving you to wonder if he's joking or not. The assumption is that he is. But on the other hand, I'm fairly certain he wants to repeal the 19th Amendment. And I'm, I, I don't really know what else to think about that. I guess you can write your own punchline there. So there we go. Libertarians, speak up because um, you're getting a bad name from uh, crazy people, basically. Okay, one last thing before I go. If you are a relatively long-time listener, you may remember a momentous event that happened uh, long ago. And it was that I... Uh, I felt it necessary to announce on the show as a point of pride that I had, for the first time in my life, been referred to by a, uh, a reviewer in iTunes as, quote, the bomb. And I was very excited about that at the time, so I made the point to announce it, and a similar event has come up. And that means that today I get to announce that for the first time in my life, I have been referred to again 
in an iTunes review as cogent. The guy said some other nice things too, but uh, I think that might be a first for cogent, and I was a little excited about that. So now, as a bit of an odd segue, uh, I have a, a bit of an issue that actually involves that original poster who referred to me as the bomb, and I have been in contact with this person, uh, codenamed Dr. G, otherwise known as Bob to me now, and I've, I've been in, in contact with him recently because he has invited me to come and speak at what was originally referred to as a meeting of the, uh, I'm not sure exactly how they refer to it, but it's like a political club of, of some sort. And, um, and so it was originally referred to as a meeting of this club and has more recently been referred to as something closer to a festival. And I'm not quite sure what to think about that, but I thought that this was as good a time as any to bring it up on the show and invite anyone who's uh, available to come. The event will be taking place in the Central California area in a uh, very small town in the Sequoia National Forest. So if you're in the area, it will be on, I believe, September 9th, and that's a Sunday. And I think, for myself anyways, I would not want to miss this, because um, it, it may be disastrous. I could be wrong, but I am led to believe that essentially I am the main attraction of this event. And although I tried to explain many times to my new friend Bob that I have never done any public speaking of any kind in my life, uh, he, he was undeterred and invited me anyways. So, uh, that's the deal. If, uh, if you're interested in coming and meeting me and then watching me, uh, try to give a bit of a talk slash speech slash lecture slash conversation, uh, leader of some sort, to be honest, I haven't, uh, finalized what I'm uh, actually going to talk about. But if you'd like to come and see this uh, uh, catastrophe in the making, I think the best thing to do would just be to send me an email at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. Ask any questions uh, you may have. Uh, to be honest, I have no idea if I have any listeners in the, the Central Valley uh, area of California. Um, although maybe I have uh, one or two on, on my Frapper map That now that I think about it. But if you're interested, um, it's, it's going to be a blast one way or another.
And then finally, just to close out the show, I will say that I have gotten a couple of very interesting uh, letter responses to my big question about why we live that I, I posed a couple of days ago. And it has given me a couple ideas. I will uh, try to address those tomorrow if I remember, frankly. So until next time, which should be in one day, if all goes to plan, have a good one, everybody. Hey folks, Godless Kinzer here from the podcast Watch It Burn. When I'm not out burying improvised education devices alongside conservative convoy routes, I listen to the other members of the Progressive Podcast Network at NewMediaRevolution.org. Why don't you go on over there and give them a listen? I'm sure you're going to enjoy what you hear. Progressive Podcast Network at NewMediaRevolution.org. Our IEDs blow conservative minds. Can I go?